G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Imagine me dating Robin, my wife, and after three years going to Charlie, my father-in-law, and saying, okay, I've been dating your daughter for three years. Give her to me. I want to sleep with her. You don't do that. Hi, and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today, Pastor Jeff speaks about letting go of anxiety. As someone who suffers with anxiety, he was hesitant to preach on this topic. He uses the Old Testament account of Jacob and Esau as the basis for his message. He's saying, I'm out here in the desert, in the wilderness. I got this no good job. My life has taken a turn for the worse when I thought it couldn't get any worse. My life is a mess. But if I can just get the girl, everything will be good. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 29, verse 15 through 20, and there'll be some others following. Genesis 29, uh, what's interesting is that when we started this series, the whole theme was that if you you ever go bowling for the first time uh, and people are trying to advise you how to do it, usually they'll say to you, man, just, just run down the aisle and let it go. That was the whole thing. And that there are some things in your life that are so complicated uh, that you face, uh, that are so difficulty or difficult that have the potential to really ruin your life, that the only way you can deal with it is simply come to a point of faith where you let it go. Just let it go, give it to God, and let him do what he's going to do with it. Uh, I couldn't believe when we were seated at a cafe over in Valencia that we were talking about the topics that each pastor would deal with, and all three of them looked at me and said, okay, Jeff, the only one left is anxiety. Do you think you could deal with that one? I thought, man, I don't want to deal with that because our people have heard me talk about that so much. They're really tired of it. You know, the wham, 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 get on with your life. And then I started thinking that, you know, as a pastor, I try to be, I try to be honest with you. And I, it's probably good. You don't want a pastor who lies. Uh, but there's, there's honesty, right? And then there's what we call total transparency. It's where you allow people to look in to see something that you normally wouldn't share with somebody. And so I talked to the guys and I decided, okay, I'll deal with this. But if I'm going to deal with it, we're going to go to that area of transparency where I let you in a little bit uh, in this journey. By way of, of, of getting started, about 30 years ago, I remember reading an article in the Orange County Register. I didn't read it 30 years ago, but I read it after it had been written. And the title of the article was, Americans Want Happiness, But No One Knows Where to Find It. And the article was written by a secular humanist. So the man is the measure of all things. There is no God. And he said that he was having trouble harmonizing why it is that this generation, we are more healthy than our parents or grandparents because of the advancement in medication, medicine, depending on which way you look at it. And we're also more wealthy. We have a greater sense of income than did our parents or grandparents. And we have a greater sense of liberty. We're able to go and travel and see the world, do things that our parents and grandparents were never able to do because of lack of funding or it just wasn't that readily available. 
So he goes to great lengths to show you that in this generation, we're more healthy, more wealthy, we have a greater sense of liberty than did our parents or grandparents. And yet, he said, something has increased in this society today, increased 20%, that makes no sense. Now, when something increases 10% in a given generation, they start to refer to it as an epidemic. He said, but this has increased 20%. And then he goes on two-thirds through the article to say, we are more healthy, we are more wealthy, we have a greater sense of liberty than did our parents and grandparents, and yet something has risen 20%, and that something is anxiety and depression. So how can we increase in anxiety and depression 20% while having a greater sense of health, greater sense of wealth, and a greater sense of liberty than our parents? And then he goes on as a secular atheist. In the article, he goes on to say that we're not willing to admit in America that what is happening is the disintegration of the soul. Now, it's very rare that I'll hear an atheist use the word soul. It'll usually be something psyche or the emotions, but he actually uses the word soul. He says, in America, the soul is disintegrating, and it's a problem, and it's epidemic. For me, this is much more than just theory of some kind. It's, It's personal. When six years ago, you know... Waking up every morning around 2.30 and my blood pressure's, you know, 240 over 130 and it's stroke level and they're rushing me to the hospital and I'm going to the emergency room almost every night for six months. It's ridiculous. I'm not convinced. They're telling me there's nothing wrong with me and I'm just waiting for the next one to come. I can't leave the house. I get out in traffic and if the traffic stops, I start panicking. Um, <laughs> I remember for the first time in my life, I started contemplating the idea of suicide. Not that I was going to take my own life, but that I started thinking why, I started understanding why someone might do it. Because if I was going to have to live the rest of my life with that every day of my life, I started thinking it would be better just to die and go to heaven, wouldn't it? Rather than to have to face this for the rest of my years. And there'd be people come up to me and put their hand on me. And the, the first time I had my first attack, I, went, I was in Zimbabwe and they rushed me to the emergency room. Since I lost both my parents at early age, I thought I was dying of a heart attack and it feels much like a heart attack. And the doctor put his hand on my hand and he said, man, you just need to settle down. Now, if any of you do that to me today, <laughs> I, I, will, I will strike you in the name of God. I will smite you. Because if you tell me that, you don't understand what's going on here. But through the whole process, there's been the realization of some things about about myself. It's hard for a pastor to talk about this because we're supposed to have it all together. And uh, when you go through something like this, you realize you don't. You're just like everybody else. And so I want to take you back to one of my favorite narratives in the Bible. Uh, And I I think it's my favorite because if you were to ask me what Old Testament character that I am most like, it would be Jacob. Man, the more I learn about Jacob, the more I'm just like him. So in Genesis 29, we find a story. I want to take you through the narrative quickly, and then I want to speak to you from my heart. But I want you to learn the scripture because the scripture, as we said, is like a jewel, a precious jewel. And depending on what phase of your life you're in, you can turn it and the light will reflect a different way and it'll have a different meaning for you. It has an objective meaning but it always is applied differently depending on what phase of life you're in. And so we have Jacob in Genesis 29. And Jacob's life's in a mess because he's growing up in a culture of primogenitor. Primogenitor means that the firstborn gets everything. How would you like to be born in a family and you're not the firstborn? 
and you've got, you don't have the love of your father like your brother, like the older brother does. And you're not going to get the inheritance, by the way. The older brother in primogeniture gets three quarters of the inheritance and the rest is just dispersed methodically, really, with the other siblings. And so I remember in Sunday school, remember the flannel graph board? Where the Sunday school teacher would have Jacob and Esau and Jacob's grabbing Esau's what? Hill. Almost as if to say, get back into the womb, you little punk. You know, as if they're fighting who gets out of the womb first, because even though they're very closely related, the first one out is firstborn. And probably the saddest verse about Jacob's life is in Genesis 25, 28, when the Bible says Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So Jacob, because he's not the firstborn, does not have the love of his father. And anybody who's not had the love of your father knows how devastating that is, no matter how much you've tried to deny that. It's devastating. And so Rebecca, Jacob's mom, loves Jacob like Isaac loves Esau. And in the narrative, Esau is described as a hairy man who smells like, you know, the wild because he's out with his dad hunting and gathering all day while Jacob likes the tents, likes to cook in the kitchen, and he has smooth skin. But his mother loves him, and there's no way she's going to let Esau get the firstborn blessing. Now, the firstborn blessing is much more than just an existential reality. It's a contract that you made with God. And so Rebecca comes up with a scheme. Isaac is getting older. He's losing his eyesight. And it's time to give the firstborn blessing, which again is a contract with God. So Rebecca goes out and she gets some goat hair and she glues it to Jacob. And she goes down to Walmart and buys a bottle of outdoor man perfume and sprinkles it all over him. And he goes into the tent and Isaac really doesn't see that well. And he's, well, you feel like Esau and you smell like Esau. So he gives him the firstborn blessing. And Jacob thinks his life's going to take a turn for the better, but it doesn't. Because suddenly he realizes he's wounded the heart of his father forever. His father's never going to forgive him. Esau now is trying to kill him for stealing the firstborn blessing And he's never going to see his mother again, the only woman who's really ever loved him, because Esau, he's got to run for his life. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Pastor Jeff's message is about letting go of anxiety. And he's speaking about Jacob's deception in stealing Esau's birthright from the book of Genesis. The Bible tells us in this powerful story that he runs to Uncle Laban, Rebecca's brother, in a far distant country, but it's a real place. And Laban hires him working among the cattle and the sheep. It's long hours and very little pay. And then one day Uncle Laban comes to Jacob and says, Jacob, just because we're related and I'm your uncle doesn't mean you should work for free. Tell me what your wages shall be. And Jacob's response is that of a desperate man. The Bible tells us that Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. It says Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, basically, Uncle Laban says, what shall your wages be? And Jacob says, forget the cash, give me the girl. (laughs) Forget the cash, give me the girl. And he says, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Seven years. Is any woman really worth seven years hard labor? Now, guys, if you're married and you're seated next to your wife, that I just gave you the perfect opportunity. Like, I can only open the door. I can't make you walk through it. You should have said, honey, you are. The normal price for a suitor in the days of Jacob and Esau, somewhere around 40 shekels. 
Jacob's job with the cattle and the herds pays 1.5 shekel per month. So if you do the math, he's not offering double, he's not offering triple, he's offering quadruple. He's insane. In a culture that's built on haggling, he's not even haggling. Verse 17 might tell us why. The Bible says, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. These two words, the Hebrew word for form is the word for curves. <laughs> it's the Bible's way of telling you that yes, Rachel had a beautiful face. That's what the word appearance means, but she also had a sexually attractive body. That's the Bible. The Bible's honest. It tells you it's a good looking woman. He's overwhelmed when he sees Rachel. How overwhelmed is he? Genesis 29, 11 says that he was able to sneak a kiss. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. Ladies, when's the last time your husband wept? You're so beautiful. I just love you. <laughs> and then in verse 20, Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days. Just a few days, seven years hard labor. Now, before some of you women say, wow, man, I want a man like that. No, you don't. <laughs> This is not the kind of love that you think that you want. This is not the, the kind of relationship. Jacob's not looking forward to walking on the beach with Rachel and talking about the emotional state of their relationship and their future. No, no, no. You say, well, how do you know that, Pastor Jeff? Because after the seven years are up, he goes to Uncle Laban and look what he says in verse 21. Give me your daughter, Rachel, that I may lie with her. I love watching Hebrew scholars squirm to try to explain what's going on in this path. This is utterly uh, outrageous. You would not do this in uh, Jacob. Wait a minute, you wouldn't do this in our time. Imagine me dating Robin, my wife, and after three years going to Charlie, my father-in-law, and saying, okay, I've been dating your daughter for three years. Give her to me, I want to sleep with her. <laughs> you don't do that. Uh, that's not how you ask for somebody's daughter's hand in marriage, just so you know. And you didn't do it in Jacob's time either. Now, Robert Alter is a Hebrew scholar that actually lives in Northern California, quite respected. And he says the explanation is a lot more simple than we make it. Here is a man, Jacob, who is spiritually, emotionally, and sexually overwhelmed with longing for Rachel. Jacob will do whatever it takes to get her, but the question is why? And the answer is because this is the way Jacob is dealing with the unrealistic expectations or unresolved expectations or unrealized expectations of his life. He's saying, I'm out here in the desert, in the wilderness. I got this no good job. My life has taken a turn for the worse when I thought it couldn't get any worse. I've wounded the heart of my father. I'll never see my mother, the only woman who's ever loved me again. And my brother Esau is trying to kill me. My life is a mess. But if I can just get the girl, everything will be good. <laughs> That's what he's saying. If I can just get this beautiful woman. Actually, he's saying this. If I can just have sex with this beautiful woman, my life will be fulfilled and complete. Time out. Aren't you glad that we've advanced so much in culture? <laughs> That never today would any man or woman say, man, my life will be complete if I could just get the guy or the girl. Isn't it such a relief? <laughs> Dr. Tim Keller, in addressing this particular passage of the scripture, mentions Ernest Becker's book, uh, who won a Pulitzer Prize, uh, The Denial of Death. Again, he's a secular atheist. I'm finding it interesting that all these people who are atheistic in their worldview, Becker in the book that gained high praise said that we Americans, we have no idea how Americans who once believed in God no longer believe in God, or if they say they do, it's a God they've created in their own image, so there's no relationship in this God. He says, you won't believe what Americans are doing now to, to, 
to satisfy the inner longings that only God can fill. And he's not even a believer in God. He's just making the statement. And he says he calls it the romantic solution. He says that's why the dating websites are so popular and there's a gazillion of them. Because we feel if our life is in disarray, but if we can just get the guy, if we can just get the girl, everything will be fine. He describes it as the romantic solution to life. He defines it like this. The belief that if we can find that one true love, all of our feelings of insignificance, purposelessness, and meaninglessness will dissipate. So we say to ourselves, the abuse that I suffered growing up, the fact that my mom or my dad loved my brother or my sister more than me, the fact that my family is in disarray, this great sense of failure that I feel, the fact that I didn't get the recording contract, I didn't get the, 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 I wasn't drafted by the sports team, I didn't get the promotion at work, I'm not living where I want to live or how I want to live. The fact that all this is a mess, but if I can just get the guy or the girl, everything will be fine. Jacob is applying the romantic solution to Rachel. He thinks Rachel can be his savior. If I can just get the girl, everything's good. Now, here's where the story turns somewhat humorous because Jacob is a deceiver and a con artist. He gets that from his mom. Remember what she did? But neither one of them, they're not a match for Uncle Laban. Because Uncle Laban takes one look at Jacob and sees how desperate he is and how he reveals his hand way too early. I'll work seven years for Rachel. And then his evil mind goes to work because he has an ugly daughter he's trying to unload. (laughs) Now, don't be mad at me. I'm just telling you the Bible story. <laughs> so he looks at Jacob and thinks, man, Jacob, you're not thinking properly. You're, clearly, you're, fa- you're way over the top. You'll do anything to get Rachel. So Laban, Uncle Laban, comes up with a plan. If you notice in the narrative, he never, he never agrees with Jacob on the seven years. Never, he never says, uh, yeah, let's do it. Let's enter into contract. Let's shake hands. Let it be written. Let it be done. Seven years, you get Rachel. No, what he says is in verse nine. He says, well, it is better that I give her to you than give her to another man. That's all he says. That is a salesman statement. <laughs> it's oblique. It's positive, but there's no objective promise anywhere in it. But he knows that Jacob is so desperate. Jacob will hear what he wants to hear. So the seven years are up. Jacob comes and says, okay, Uncle Laban, I worked seven years, give me my wife. He actually says, give me your daughter that I can sleep with her. Now, you don't have to be or don't have to possess a lot of historical, archaeological, or even philosophical knowledge to know what happens next if you know the story. It's wedding day. The bride will be heavily veiled the entire day. And the wedding ceremony will start at her house, Uncle Laban's house, and will go to Jacob's house and the family and then into the village where all the family can celebrate. They'll blow the shofar, the trumpet, and there'll be dancing and there'll be a lot of eating and there will be a lot of alcohol all day long. Lots of wine, lots of drinking. And then at nighttime, Jacob and Leah or Jacob and Rachel will go into a tent after all the ceremonies and they will consummate the marriage and it'll be official. Okay. The problem is Jacob's been drinking all day (laughs) and he's been kept far enough away from the bride and there's no electricity in these days. So you can't turn the light on and they go into the tent to consummate the marriage and Jacob's had too much to drink. And he says, Oh, Rachel. And in the morning he wakes up to find out it was Leah. And now he's married to Leah. The marriage has been consummated. And he's so livid with rage that he goes to Uncle Laban and he says, why did you, you knew for what and for whom I was working. Why did you deceive me this way? 
And Uncle Laban's response is classic in verse 26. Well, around here, it's not the custom to put the younger before the older. Ouch. He must have heard what happened with Isaac. And as soon as Jacob uses the word deceived, I'm sure it was like an arrow going through his conscience and exploding because that's exactly the word Isaac used when he said, why did you deceive me? And then for Uncle Laban to throw into the word around here, it's not the custom of the older to be preferred before the younger. What happens? Or the younger before the older, it dawns on him. Suddenly, Laban is doing to me exactly what I did to my dad. My dad reached out in the dark thinking it was Esau, but it was me, Jacob. I reached out in the dark thinking it was Rachel, but it was Leah. <laughs> and then he just goes away. There's no discussion. No, no, I said seven, none of that. He knows he's been had. And then the writer introduces us to Leah. This is Today with Jeff Vines. We'll leave it there for today, but join us next time to hear more about Jacob and his wives and letting go of anxiety. The Bible says God's ultimate objective for you is that He would have supremacy in your life, that you would have other passions, and we do, it's okay. But if He wants our primary passion to be Him, that's the best life you could possibly live. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.